Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Agents of Change in Environmental Health podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. We are thrilled to have you aboard again. The Agents of Change fellows are doing some incredible work. Two weeks ago, we published our first essay from this cohort. April Ballard wrote about the search for dignity in research on people experiencing homelessness. It is an incredible read, and I encourage all of you to check it out if you haven't done so already. I'd also like to point out that this podcast and this fellowship program would simply not be possible without support. We are fortunate to receive support from both readers and listeners like yourself, as well as organizations. And today I'd like to draw attention to one of our supporters, Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in their product formulations, and they advocate tirelessly for safer industry regulations, because they believe beauty should be good for you. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. On to the show. Today I'm talking to Ari Badaki, a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. Ari is an educator who has traveled the world working with diverse communities. She has a deep interest and great insight into tapping into cultural ways of knowing and being when trying to better our planet and communities. She also talks about the importance of dance in her life as both a release from her work as well as a connection to her family's past. Enjoy the show. All right. Well, I'm super happy to be joined by Ara Badaki. Ara, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm grateful for a new year, hopeful for more optimistic beginnings, but also very uh, prepared, trying to be prepared for whatever 2021 brings. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all learned to, to not expect too much. I was hearing, uh, listening to some NPR predictions from last year about t- 2020, and, and I think everybody was way off. So. Right, right. <laughs> Well, uh, Ara, I'm really happy to have you here today. Your story is fascinating. And I wanted to start with, um, so I know your family emigrated to the U.S. when you were very young from Nigeria. And I was wondering if you can tell me a a little bit about this move and any aspects of your upbringing that made you want to become an educator. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, Yeah, you're correct. We emigrated to the U.S. when I was three. Um, There was sort of a lot of political and social unrest in Nigeria at the time. There had just been another attempted coup. So uh, my parents were seeking more stability and safety and, uh, you know, better opportunities, education opportunities for uh, my siblings and I. And so um, I knew that. I I think that's like the first thought I had about why I was in this country was because of education. Um, So I sort of grew up with uh, an appreciation of education, but also I think an appreciation for educators. Um, my mom always wanted to be a teacher and was like secretly, actually not so secretly, uh, hoping that one of her kids <laughs> would end up being uh, in education. So I'm, I'm making her proud. Um, and my dad, um, he's not currently an educator, but his first job out of university uh, was teaching. Uh, Nigeria has a National Youth Service Corps, which is sort of like a mandated uh, mandated America AmeriCorps. And um, so there's, you know, you serve sort of a year uh, out of college doing something to help develop the country. And my dad uh, was stationed in a high school in uh, Bendel State, where he taught English and literature. And my 
journey sort of uh, picks up where he left off and then works backwards. Um, so my dad went on to have a career in international development, which is what I wanted to do in uh, university. I wanted to work with the UN and sort of uh, work on more global sort of macro level policy and planning. But the more I learned about social issues like food insecurity, climate change, racial justice, health inequities, uh, I think the more I became convinced that the only, or at least the, a main proactive and sustainable solution was education because people and systems can't change unless they know how, um, unless they learn how to. So uh, yeah, this is clearly not revolutionary, but it was in important enough, I think, to my 20-year-old self uh, and uh, sort of sparked a desire to understand um, and learn more about the art and science of teaching. Um, and I think I was also struck at the time, even when I was just sort of ruminating and considering this next step, I was struck by the what I perceived as a, a lack of value in educators. Um, like I said, I came from a family that valued educators, so that wasn't an issue, but it was more sort of uh, colleagues or even distant relatives. When I said that this is what I wanted to do after graduation, I was met with the sort of like, oh, really? You like did all this work and got this degree just so you could teach? Um, and I later learned in my subsequent master's uh, degrees that this is not by accident and that sort of at least in this country, a seemingly innocuous movement towards accountability and standardization um, in public education, somewhat prompted by uh, like a real obsession with uh, education economics in the 70s, sort of helped to create a culture that, uh, although recognized the importance and impact of teachers in addressing social issues, uh, in a way sort of placed the bulk of the burden on them for fixing all the issues and uh, simultaneously, like stripping them of resources and blaming them for failures of the public education system. Um, so, I mean, certain books like um, Elizabeth Green's Building a Better Teacher and Dana Goldstein's Teacher Wars helped me sort of unpack these experiences and see the profession from a wider systems level analysis rather than sort of pathologizing from a pathologizing perspective that localized the problems within individual teachers. So, anyway. I ended up teaching after college and uh, was able to integrate uh, my interest in international development because I ended up being able to teach in different parts of the world and eventually did get the chance to work with the UN on education policy. And yeah, that's sort of how I found myself here. I'm glad you mentioned the books because I was going to ask you about that. It's always fascinated me to uh, and and saddened me to think about how we, we don't treat teachers in this country as pillars of society. I mean, these are the people that we send our children to, to go and learn about our world from. And um, I, I, I'm definitely going to check out those books. And I know as an educator, you've, you've worked in a lot of different communities around the world too. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of those places and experiences and how health and environmental sustainability have kind of remained a common thread in a lot of the work that you've been doing. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so uh, my first foray into teaching, um, which was not very successful, uh, but I did my best, but you know, it is a challenge. It's a really, really hard thing to do. Uh, but I was teaching in South Africa in, in Kailicha, which is a township outside of Cape Town. Um, and I was teaching sort of uh, literacy, just sort of more um, 
uh, like supplemental courses. I wasn't teaching core courses, thankfully, um, but I was teaching literacy. I was teaching civic engagement. Um, and then sort of went to get more official training and uh, taught middle school language arts on the Navajo reservation in New Mexico. Um, and while I was teaching there over the summers, I, would, I was teaching in Ghana because I had sort of forged a connection with a school in Kumasi while I was in at, while I was at university and so I wanted to continue that connection and I sort of uh, was trying to build a cross-cultural um, like civic engagement project slash program between my students in Navajo and my students in Ghana um, and then after that I went to work with UNESCO on uh, policy and programming initiatives that were focusing on youth engagement within the cultural and creative industries in Samoa um, and while there I was just volunteering um, with different youth groups. Um, and then right before starting my doctorate, I worked on a UN commission report on financing uh, sustainable development goal number four, which is about ensuring inclusive and quality education. I'm wondering, you know, as a reporter who's, who's done a lot of reporting on environmental justice, injustice, one of the things that I find really important is before I go into community to have done my homework, um, yeah. to not go in there uh, with any assumptions and, and being respectful enough to know the history. I'm wondering when you're bouncing around, uh, and maybe it wasn't bouncing, but you know there was some there was some time in between. How much homework for you goes into understanding the cultural differences between, say, the Navajo Reservation and, and places in South Africa? Yeah, thank you. Um, all of my expectations uh sort of came from a place of well actually just having no expectations and more of um thinking about what uh i could do that would be of service um and you can't really be of service unless you know <laughs> what is already happening and what's already going on and so um i uh like my training for teaching in the Navajo reservation was really rooted in something called culturally responsive teaching um or in education, sometimes it's called uh, culturally sustaining pedagogies, but really, again, in uh, recognizing that public education has been a tool that has erased uh, so many different ways of knowing, ways of being, um, that it also needs to be a tool in, in uh, sort of rectifying that. Um, and so I had a, a wide array of experiences um, with different populations, but also because uh, I had specific um, yeah, I had specific uh, intentions of purely listening. I think that's what drew me to research. That's what drew me to want to do this work is because that's your job. That should be your job as a researcher is to listen. Um, and I do qualitative research. I do ethnographic research. And so I've always, well, I hope anyway, um, you'd have to go and talk to <laughs> the people I've worked with to make sure that I actually did this. But I, I put a high, uh, I put a lot of value on listening. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in these contexts, um, I realized I didn't answer the second part of the question, which is how does that how does sort of environmental um, and community health tie into all of these different experiences? Um, so I was teaching um, uh, in addition to teaching sort of in formal settings, I was uh, teaching in non-formal settings and community settings. And at the core of that work was civic engagement um, at the core of all of my pedagogy and curriculum. Uh, so students were using what they were learning in their classrooms to design and implement 
community engagement projects. Um, and many of the communities where these students were from suffered from deep uh, health and environmental justice issues, colonialism, industrialism, capitalism, you name it. Um, and the issues students tended to want to address with their projects were at the intersection of public and environmental health. And the reason that I introduced these into curriculum, uh, curricula originally was because I asked, you know, uh, students like what, uh, what do you want to do? What do you care about? Um, and sort of these were the issues that uh, emerged. Um, and so students ended up doing projects around pollution, uh, diabetes in their community, drug and alcohol abuse, degradation of the built and natural environment. Um, so these were some of the topics that they ended up addressing. Um, and it's interesting because I'm not an environmental health I'm not an environmental science teacher, I'm not a health teacher, uh, but you sort of realize how interdisciplinary these issues are. Um, I found that, especially when I was teaching in indigenous settings, there's less of a compartmentalization of, uh, let me not say all indigenous settings, specifically when I was working on the Navajo um, reservation, um, there was less of a compartmentalization of different ways of knowing and being. Um, so I taught in a US public school, but it was on Navajo territory and that was, as a sovereign nation. And so we were also encouraged to, at the same time we were using, you know, um, national education policy standards, Common Core was big at the time. Um, we were also using standards from the uh, Navajo Nation Department of Diné Education. Diné is the term that Navajo people uh, used to refer to themselves. And they have, uh, they had standards on sort of culture and uh, how to develop cultural and cultural understandings and character. Um, uh, cultural and character understandings. Um, and so at the same time, I was teaching Common Core standards like, you know, identify main idea and support idea with evidence. Uh, but I was also bringing in um, standards or, uh, yeah, I was also bringing in standards from the Diné um, Department of Education, which were around investigating uh, different preparations of plants or understanding how to fundamentally live uh, in harmony with your environment and sort of trying to merge those two uh, different ways of knowing, like still prepare my students for the assessments that they needed to take, because <laughs> that was my job, uh, but also make sure that there was, uh, it was my teaching was being guided by something a little bit more relevant and responsive to what I was hearing from them. Um, so, yeah. And before we talk more about your work, um, you, you talked about this, I don't know if it was a moment, but when you were thinking about working at the UN and kind of the, these these larger systems, and then you decided that uh, an educator was your path. I'm wondering if, uh, my question is, what was a defining moment that shaped your identity? And I don't know if that was it or if there's something else. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think, I guess one, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is while I was teaching, sort of recognizing that there doesn't have to be that big of a gap between sort of what I was doing in the classroom and what might be happening, you know, in UN headquarters in, in Paris. Um, and uh, and it was sort of, and I think that's why as a, as a university-based researcher now um, and as an educator now, like being able to bridge those worlds, um, that's something I'm really interested in. But I think a moment when I was teaching where I was like, okay, I feel like I still want to make sure like if I'm entering into a space 
if I'm entering into a policy space, I'm entering into um, an academic space, like what is what am I bringing to the table? Um, and I and part of the reason I wanted to teach is because I, I felt like I wanted a skill set, like something rooted in practice um, that made it so that anything I was saying about sort of wider decisions that were being made about people's lives was rooted in uh in sort of my experience with actual people and I had faces in mind, names in mind. Um, and so I think um, my, fa- like the moment, I don't think, uh, I don't sort of claim to be any sort of um, like gifted <laughs> or masterful teacher. I just, I really like it. Uh, but I think one, one moment where I really felt like I was in my zone um, was one of my classes one of my seventh grade classes had decided that they wanted to write a uh, a play. They wanted to write a, a, a play and they wanted it to be bilingual. They wanted it to be in Navajo and English. And clearly I do not speak Navajo and I have no right to teach Navajo, but we did have a lang- uh, Navajo language teacher at the school. Um, we did have obviously this wealth of resources and students' parents and their and their grandparents. And so in and of itself, it, we had to sort of open up our classroom uh, to knowledge bases that like I didn't have and, um, and uh, we needed. Um, and it was just really wonderful sort of seeing different personalities emerged. Some kids were like all about script writing. Some kids were all about acting. Some kids were all about stage directing publicity, like really being able to activate these different um, uh, skill sets that were dormant in, in, in some ways, at least in my classroom up until that moment. Um, and it didn't come without struggle. I, they, I actually did receive pushback from some parents who uh, didn't want sort of uh, students thinking about or working with the Navajo language in my class because I was an English language arts teacher. And uh, uh, some of the parents and some of the um, grandparents of my students were um, unfortunately part of sort of the native boarding school uh, system in this country. And for those who don't know, it was sort of a really, um, yeah, a really, really dark moment, uh, one of many um, in which sort of the US public education forcibly removed uh, many children, native children from their families and forced them into uh, boarding schools where the sole objective was to uh, remove and erase uh, their their culture and their identity and sort of assimilate into American Western ideologies. Um, and so in a lot of, or not a lot, but some people were coming from that background. And so they didn't understand why in an English language arts classroom, they would be trying to integrate Navajo. And I had to have some difficult conversations around, you know, the difference between subtractive bilingual education and additive. It doesn't, it's not a zero-sum game and sort of rigorous rigorous um, uh, teaching in both languages can actually facilitate better proficiency in both um, if done well. And uh, so, I mean, we had different issues um, along the way, but I really, at the end of it, did feel like, okay, uh, this was a collaborative project. This was a creative project. This was a project about citizenship. Um, and now, as I'm researching more and sort of working with different stakeholders in policy, in academia, in community-based settings. Um, those are three things that I think really connect what I want to do um, and what I hope to continue doing. That's great. I live uh, I live near two Anishinaabe tribes up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And one thing I've learned is how central language is to culture. Um, mm-hmm. And perhaps that sounds... Um, 
naive <laughs> to someone <laughs> like you who's probably thought about this a lot more, but having grown up uh, in, in a city and then moved up here uh, near the reservation, it, it it is one thing that I've noticed and, and your story kind of struck at that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of your work has, has centered on youth of color and thinking about them as future leaders and given the unprecedented attention this past year on people like Greta Thunberg and other young climate activists, how do you feel the media portrayal and overall coverage of this movement has been? And, and what are what do you think people are missing or not thinking about when we talk about youth activists and leaders? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a big proponent of, of the power of young people and the need to uplift their voices. Um, I just I think that they're... Um, I think that what I've learned through my work thus far, as well as what I've learned through my work with my advisors, who uh, one of my advisors has written advisors has written extensively about sort of the need to think about um, intergenerational learning um, when we're thinking about literacy or language development, um, because young people are part of ecosystems, they're part of families, they're part of uh, communities uh, that don't sort of disappear uh, when they are giving a speech at the UN or when they are coming into a classroom. Um, And so I think the excitement around young people is warranted. Youth are at the heart of so many uh, social movements in the 60s, at the heart of civil rights movement in, in this country, but also in sort of the fight for independence in many countries in West Africa, also in the 50s and 60s. Um, now they're at the heart of you know, gun control um, movements, police reform, racial justice, and of course, climate change. Uh, so I think the excitement is warranted. I just, I think that, um, you know, recognizing uh, that it's not, always helpful to sort of pin all of our hopes on these children um, and also remove them from the context from which they come. So I work with young people who are working towards food justice and um, uh, environmental sustainability. They're working on community gardens and farms. Um, And although they're at the center of my work, I focus and one of the reasons I'm at these gardens and farms and not necessarily in schools is because I wanna focus on that intergenerational learning context. there, these people are not alone, and they're also not starting from scratch. Um, and I think uh, working in food, uh, community food settings affords me the opportunity to witness the possibilities and successes, but also the challenges and tensions. This is not all like everybody holding hands and agreeing. Um, I think for many of us who uh, either might be, you know, uh, some people who are at home now more than they have been in the past, um, it's, you know, your family and your community are, are a part of you, but that doesn't mean that it's always easy. And so trying to um, unpack these dynamics, unpack these tensions is also an important part of the work. Um, and I think specifically for communities of color, uh, given this country's history of exploiting black and brown bodies in the name of agricultural and economic productivity, and it's, it's important to face head on the generational trauma often associated with land work for communities of color. Um, and the continued legacy of sort of social spatial inequity as a result of environmental racism and unjust labor practices and so on. Uh, what I actually asked one of the young people I work with, I asked her um, a little while ago what if there was a stereotype that she sort of wished would just go away about the work that she does and that she wished she would, you know, that she could address. And she said that uh, she wished people would stop calling what she's doing slave work. Um, 
She has family members who were part of the Great Migration away from the South, but also away from land work. Um, land work, and I guess her return to this work is not off, is not always taken is not always a positive thing in the in the eyes of some of her community members. Um, however, she stresses that she does this, she chooses this. This is not you know something that is forced upon her. Um, but at the same time, this work is not glamorous and it's not a choice for everybody. Uh, the largest strike in history, in the history of the world is going on right now in India uh, due to policy changes that seem to put free market capitalism ahead of farmer health and livelihood. Uh, so people are dying and uh, sacrificing because of this work. Um, and it's important, but it's, it's fraught. Um, and many people, many of the young people I'm listening to are talking to the fact that while their power and the power of the communities is the com their communities is immense, it is not up to them alone to fix these issues. Um, they're asking that those who have the most power hold themselves accountable. Um, I think a little before, you know, Greta Thunberg's famous speech at the UN Climate Action Summit, youth activists with the Sunrise Movement. Uh, we're holding a sit-in in Speaker Pelosi's office, um, sort of planting the seed for what would become the language for the Green New Deal. Uh, they talked about jobs, they talked about wages, they talked about basic human rights and the need to ensure that these things come about in a way that doesn't make them obsolete uh, because what's the point of all of this if there's no world um, to enjoy it? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, this is something I'm... I'm still learning a, a lot about. Um, one of the Agents of Change staff, um, Raya, um, she actually sent me a Instagram thread about uh, the need to talk about what the, I actually don't have Instagram, so I apologize if I'm not using the right terminology. I'm not, uh, many people tell me I'm not like a real millennial, so I apologize. Um, but uh, the thread was talking about this notion of Gen Z saviorism and, um, sort of needing to address that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's something I hadn't really, I'd been thinking about that in, in different terms, but I appreciate this the language and, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about it. You talk about some of these youth standing on the shoulders of, of people that came before them or, or maybe current elders that are, that are working on these issues. And you mentioned, uh, you know, you mentioned a few times cultural ways of knowing and being and I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack that phrase a little bit, what you mean by that, and maybe examples of, of you seeing that in action. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I think um, one example that comes to mind um, is, like, I'm just thinking about storytelling um, and different ways that uh, knowledge gets passed down. Um, and so for me, like a cultural way of knowing and being, or I guess more specifically knowing, I uh, one of the things I really appreciate about my childhood is my parents had a proverb for like every life lesson they tried to instill. And it was just sort of a quick little bite of you know, wisdom um, that, I mean, lots of, I mean, everybody has, everybody has their sayings, everybody has their, their, you know, um, their cultural sayings, but I think um, having this as something that was regularly infused into my, 
into my education. Um, and something that also revealed like there were some problems were like very specific about um, uh, like regions or or localities in Nigeria, which I don't know very well. I didn't grow up there. Um, and uh, it was it felt it felt good to um, have this sort of connection. Um, and I think having that be part of my of the education I received from you know wonderful teachers uh, made it so I could see things or help me see things a little bit more expansively. Um, yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit. And as I talk to you, I'm surrounded by musical instruments. I play a, a wide variety of them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for me, it's something I, I sometimes take a break from work. It reframes my brain and, or I just, you know, I'm done for the day and it, it's something to do. And I know a little bit about how much you like to dance and how, mm-hmm. how it's integral to, to your being. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a, a bit about your dancing and why music, dancing and movement are so important to you. And if, if you draw on that creative energy at all in your work, examining these social and natural, um, uh, in your education and things like that. Yeah, thank you for that. I think it's actually a really good, um, it's a good topic to talk about after the last topic, because I think uh, for me, dance is a cultural way of knowing and being, um, uh, particularly West African dance that I think really informs my work. Uh, so as an educator, I, you know, I always try at least to make space for my students' whole selves. Um, and I think it's hard to do that if you're not doing that if you're not leading by example. Um, and so for me, I, I first accessed the world through music and movement. Um, you know, before I could talk, I was like humming and dancing and imitating the sounds and the movements that I found most compelling. Um, it was how I was soothed and comforted. Uh, there are baby stories in which like I would have like complete meltdowns um, and they would like completely suddenly dissipate as soon as somebody started you know, singing or clapping and giving me a reason to boogie down. So it was just something that I, I, I always loved doing. Um, and it hasn't really changed actually. I think when I'm working or writing and I need, I can't, I just can't do it anymore. I just have to have sort of some like dance, <laughs> dance session. Um, but yeah, so needless to say, I grew up loving it. I'm not, I, I don't sort of claim to be to have the determination and um um skill set of people who make this their profession uh but it is something that i i think informs the work i i do um uh there was this there's one yoruba song uh that i remember learning growing up um and it's called ojomaro um which translates which, which roughly translates to uh rain must Rain, please fall. And it's a prayer and sort of gratitude song that's traditionally sung during the dry season in Nigeria, from my understanding. And it speaks to the importance of rain and helping plants and people and communities grow. And for me, it's notable that I remember this because uh, I, being an immigrant in this country, I, I actually spent a lot of my time trying to assimilate, trying to be as American as Barbie and Disney World. And I think, unfortunately, I did not pay as much attention to the stories of my my ancestors um, as I would have liked to. However, for some reason, this song stuck with me. And I think possibly it's because, you know, singing and dancing to it were opportunities to reflect on the ways in which my natural and social environments were interwoven. Because um, sometimes rain was was literal. We were like literally dancing to the rain. Sometimes it was symbolic, sometimes it was both. Um, 
And I think more recently, you know, I've begun learning more about West African dance and it's really struck me how these dances were informed by food, cult food cultivation and preparation practices. Um, uh, and I think one reason for this uh, is likely because uh, before colonialism and before the written language, this was how stuff got done. This is how people learned how to do it, <laughs> how to cook, how to, how to farm, how to harvest. Um, and that's how knowledge was passed down. Um, there's a book called History Dances by Dr. Abiola from Howard University that talks much more eloquently about this than I can. But um, I think when I dance pers personally, uh, the movements sort of connect me to stories and legacies that could have been lost um, to a land that I'm not actually physically in right now. Um, and it's also just nice to feel like these movements existed long before me, they'll exist long after me, but they'll also never be the same as they are when I perform them. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, it, because I think a lot about how people interact with their built in natural environments um, and thinking about food access more specifically um, and how this affects health and well being. Uh, movement and embodiment are important lenses through which I view my work um, as both an educator and a researcher. Um, I think I also find it a little bit of a reprieve, um, this like thinking about my body. Um, there's a lot of, I think, valorization of, or valorizing of intellectualism and we're, we're intellectuals and the intellect this, the intellect that. Um, but I you know, take heed from a lot of critical feminist scholars and indigenous scholars and others who remind us that we are not just our intellect, we are our bodies, we are spirits, we are feelings, and, you know, there are uh, other important faculties to consider when we're thinking about our, the rigor of our work. Um, so, I mean, it's not, uh, I do recognize that there are more expansive and comprehensive conceptualizations of intellectualism. One of my advisors speaks really beautifully about the power and thinking of young people in particular as intellectuals. So it's not, I don't reject the notion completely. I just don't, uh, I don't define myself by it and I don't measure mine or my students' success by it. That's great. You're, you're, you're talking about wanting to be American and wanting to be as American as Disney and Barbie is I don't think that feeling in youth is confined to the immigrant experience. It made me think, so I grew up in the Detroit region and I remember going to school early on where it was nationality day and my mom outfitted me in Polish regalia with bells. And I couldn't even tell you what, what, what it came from. <laughs> when I got to school, everybody else had on, if they were Italian, say it was just a white t-shirt with, you know, red shorts or something. Mm -hmm. And I was mm -hmm. literally jingling down the hallway and was mortified, of course, you know, embarrassed and didn't want to be Polish or making noise in the hallways. Mm -hmm. And now later in life, of course, I've I've tried to, you know, look into the roots of how the the, the, the immigration story of my family coming over. So I think mm -hmm. wherever you find it in life, it's uh, it's still valuable to tap back into that right. uh, story. But so, of course, the reason we're here is you're an Agents of Change fellow. And the whole idea of this program is to um, communicate your science, communicate your work to a uh, to perhaps a broader audience than you're used to, more of a lay audience. And I'm wondering to this point, what your experience has been with communicating your work to the general public and if there's any tools you've used or any advice for fellow researchers who want to be more proactive in communicating and advocating for their own work. 
Great, thanks. Um, yeah, I have another mentor who's really helped me think about uh, the importance of collaboration in communication and sort of recognizing what your proclivities are, what your, like independent of your uh, profession, um, or I guess not independent, but like regardless of your profession, like what are you good at <laughs> doing and what do you like doing? Um, and so uh, I, I think about that a lot um, when it comes to, and I think about it in different stages of my work. Like I, um, I'm I'm based at a university. I teach classes at a university, but I also teach classes or teach workshops in, in, in community settings. Um, and I do research in different capacities. And so there's lots of different ways I can collaborate. Um, and it doesn't, it's not always uh, practical or effective or efficient to like try and collaborate in every single aspect of it, but like putting in the work beforehand to think about, okay, where do I need help? What don't I know? Um, and I think my my concern now is as as uh, as a researcher and as an educator is less it's sort of less about um, making my research more accessible to communities I work with, and sort of more about how to elevate and amplify the knowledge and the research that already exists in these communities and make that more actionable for academics, for policy and industry, so there can be sort of more responsive and engagement with this knowledge and so that we can just have more responsible engagement. Um, and so I think you need both. I mean, unfortunately there is a, for us, especially under resource communities, there is one of the factors is is often sometimes um, a lack of access to information. So you, you also need that. Um, but I find myself more compelled uh, by questions about what do people already know uh, rather than what don't they know. Um, and then I work on sort of you know, filling that gap wherever that is. Um, and I think a lot of my thinking on this uh, has come from my work with a collective that I helped to lead um, at my university called the Collective for Advancing Multimodal Research Arts. Academics like words, um, but uh, it's like the short version is camera. Um, and it's sort of an interdisciplinary group of researchers and artists and activists that are interested in exploring the ways in which different modalities and media can help to democratize the research process, um, especially in social and natural sciences. Um, so again, we're looking at along all the sort of points along the research pipeline from data collection, data analysis, data dis dissemination. Um, how can we better integrate knowledge and practices that are integral to the communities we are uh, we care about and sort of open up this, uh, this thing we call research um, and uh, sort of work towards the social justice aims that we we hope for. Um, so for the example is we have an inaugural event, not an inaugural event, apologies, annual event. Um, the inaugural event was many years ago. Um, that is sort of a hybrid between academic conference and a media festival. And it's called the Screening Scholarship Media Festival. And it's this really sort of eclectic, um, but also just really rigorous um, uh, event where people who are working uh, working on the same issues. So we'll have a panel on 
like neoliberal school policies in Philadelphia, for instance, and but we'll have a filmmaker and a uh, researcher and a teacher and a student all on the same panel um, talking about these issues from their different sort of positions and their positionalities and um, sort of the, you know filling in the gaps um, based off of where they where they stand. Um, and so for me, I, I think about yeah, like what aspect of my identity is most salient at different points um, in different discussions? And then how do I leverage that um, to, uh, yeah, make sure that what is already known, that we're, that we're sort of creating, um, we're having discussions about what is already known versus assuming things about what's not known and having discussions about that. Um, so yeah, I mean, in this collective, there are people who are working, who are theater artists, who are filmmakers, who work with photography, and others who are working with movement um, to sort of, and they're thinking about how to increase the rigor and relevance of their work through these modalities. And this is just one of, there's lots of um, uni university-based groups all over the country that is doing this work. Camera is just one of them, but I think it feels good to be part of a group of like early, we're all mostly early researchers who are thinking about these things. Um, I think for me from the beginning, it was important that I was, did work that I could talk to my mom about, that I could talk to my nieces and nephews about. And it was something that was not only uh, like they could understand, but they were interested in. Um, and I think this is one way of, of like keeping me rooted in that. Um, because it's very easy to be to get uh, to get uprooted um, when you're, you know, sitting and writing a dissertation. So um, yeah, I'm grateful for that. You mentioned not having Instagram. I'm wondering if if social media has played any role in in trying to get your work out to the broader public. And if so, how do you do it? And if not, why not? It has not, uh, mostly because I just uh, I I think it's a skill set. I mean, I, I really. Um, I have a lot of respect for it. I just don't know if I know how to do it well. Um, I It has like, so, I mean, I had Facebook um, back in the day and that was really helpful when I was teaching um, uh, to get different, like I would have like, you know, um, donors choose uh, accounts and like trying to get different different projects funded and sending them out through Facebook. And, but also it'd be great because you would see like, um, my students had, you know, pen pals in Ghana, and you would see them sort of talking to and collaborating, like, on, on these different projects through, like, my Facebook account or theirs. Um, so I definitely think it has a role to play. I honestly think, I wish, like, one of the young people I work with was here right now. They would have much more eloquent things to say, uh, I think, about social media. It is something I, I definitely want to learn more about. Um, I just don't, yeah, I just don't, I'm not there yet, uh, but I hope to be. Me too. Someday. <laughs> so my last question today uh, is what is the last book you have read for fun? Hmm. Um, yeah, I've been working recently on like rekindling my love for reading and writing. I'm doing a doctorate in literacy. So you would think that that would be easy. Uh, it is not. Um, and it has been a journey. Um, I think, yeah, when something sort of becomes your job, it, it sometimes gets harder to find your intrinsic desire but anyway I did read recently a book that I feel like is like broken through my this like cloud um and it's called uh, Mr. Fox <laughs> it's a fiction book but it's um 
I've been thinking a lot about writing because I'm working with some of my students on writing. And this is uh, an author. Her name is uh, Helen Oyeyemi. And she's uh, born in Nigeria, grew up in the UK, is a fiction writer, does like really interesting, like magical realism stuff. But she, this is a book about writing. Like it's a meditation. I've heard it described as a, uh, as a meditation about writing. And it's like a series of sh short stories um, that are connected by a sort of macro narrative. Um, and it's just like, so like, no, I can't predict. I couldn't predict any line. I couldn't predict any, like any scene. I couldn't predict anything. And it was very weird, uh, but very satisfying. Um, and I think the second book that's like more related to my work um, is nonfiction. It's uh, Black Food Geographies uh, by Ashanti Reese, who's, uh, does a really beautiful ethnography on a community, uh, with a community in, in DC, um, thinking about sort of uh, how they're navigating different food landscapes and navigating um, sort of lack of resources, but still sort of finding resilience. Um, and it's just, I think for me, a really good model of how to tell a really good story uh, as a researcher. Um, so I think those are the two most recent books that I've read. Great. Well, Ara, I've been asking questions for a living for a long time, and you're the first person that's thanked me for questions, <laughs> I think, ever in my life. So I really appreciate that, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Yes, I'm very grateful for this opportunity, and I'm looking forward to learning. I've learned a lot from the past cohort, and I'm looking forward to learning more from, from, uh, from my fellow cohort members. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram at ehn.org under our special projects tab. Please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast production team is myself, Gwen Raniger, and Raya Huddud. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when I speak with Crystal Vasquez, a PhD candidate at the California Institute of Technology. Have a great week.